This is Care Less, Do More. Welcome back to Care Less, Do More. This is your host, Michelle Parker, and on today's show, I got to catch up with an old and very close friend, JT Holmes. JT and I have been through a lot together, and he's someone who I know will go above and beyond as a friend. He's been at my side through loss, walking me through every step, and ultimately giving me direction when I felt like I had no compass. I'll always admire JT for the friend that he is. He's done it all in the industry and continues to grow as an athlete and so much more. We spoke about Shane's passing and JT opened up about that day. I was completely choked up listening to him speak about Shane and the loss that he's encountered. It was an honor to have this conversation and I can't thank JT enough for always looking out for our community and always stepping up to take care of all of us. Before we dive into this conversation, I'd like to thank Palisades Tahoe. This past weekend, we celebrated Shane McConkie at Palisades for the legendary Payne McSchlonkey Classic event. It's my favorite event of the year. You can't wipe the smile off my face watching hundreds, literally hundreds of snowbladers absolutely send it in every single way. Huge shout out to Palisades for hosting this event and so many more. Thank you for providing a place for our community to gather and not take life too seriously. Palisades recently announced that they'll be staying open through May and Alpine will be open on weekends in June and the 4th of July. I'm pretty sure bike season is canceled here due to the copious amount of snow. So I know I'll be skiing for as long as possible and Palisades really sets the tone for spring skiing. It's a full on vibe like no other. Join us this spring at Palisades Tahoe. Anon makes the highest quality goggles with the absolute best lens changing system. Mark my word, so quick and easy with the Magnatech technology that also seamlessly fits with their MFI face masks. Big fan of wearing helmets, and when you stick to the same brand of helmets and goggles, the fit ensures that you won't have the gaps and your forehead will stay warm. Anon optics are my choice of eyewear, specifically the M4S goggle. So many colorways and designs to choose from and different fits. Check out anonoptics.com for more details. JT Holmes happened to meet Shane McConkie at the age of 14, and upon learning that Shane was a professional skier, JT became determined to follow his footsteps. At 17, he picked up his first sponsors and started filming while competing in big mountain competitions. He had a breakout performance in Matchstick Productions' 1998 film Sixth Sense, and since then has appeared in more than 30 ski films. At 22, JT did his first base jumping on a bridge in Idaho that led him to wingsuit flying and eventually combining skiing and base jumping with ski base jumping. He's meticulously thought out some pretty incredible feats combining a multitude of sports with a parachute and skis, which took years of planning to execute perfectly. Eventually, he picked up speed riding, another winged sport with perhaps less consequence. If he's not skiing or flying, JT also loves off-road racing and is now a stunt coordinator for Hollywood Film Productions. He's been in Transformers 3, which earned him a Taurus World Stunt Award, Hangover 3, Godzilla, Fast and Furious 7, and so many more. He's basically the modern-day, real-life James Bond. Welcome to the podcast, JT. <laughs> Thanks, Black Panther. <laughs> Happy to be here. Yes. Um, and I like to call you Red Squirrel. Just throw it in there. Old radio call names. Um, good stuff. So I guess I want to trace it back to your humble beginnings in the Bay Area. Humble beginnings. Yeah. Well, spoiled son of a surgeon. Uh, I enjoyed skiing on the weekends. And I knew that skiing was for me because I was better at it than a lot of my friends and that kind of tickled my ego and I never got bored of it. I, I would enjoy playing basketball after school for an hour, but that's an hour. 
I could go skiing all day. I could just go get lost at Squaw. I could chase people around. I could um, find infinite ways to entertain myself on the hill. And so those things convinced me that skiing was my path. Uh, eventually, I went to Squaw Valley Academy at the age of 15. That's the boarding school in the valley. And the reason that that happened was uh, a friend of mine who we took with us on a weekend ski trip. And of course I could ski, ski circles around him. Well, he then went to Squaw Valley Academy and after six weeks of skiing every single day, he was better than me. And that oh, no. was just, oh boy, <laughs> I gotta go to that school too. Yeah, I gotta ski every single day. And, and it worked out uh, really well for my education and for, um, for skiing. Because you see, if you're going to school in the Bay Area, and you're missing school for skiing, they just think you're a bum. Whereas if you're in the mountains, skiing is akin to soccer practice. You know, you got to go to the soccer tournament. Of course, the teachers are going to work with you and let you turn in your homework before or after, take the test when you get back. That's just how high school sports work. But when your sport isn't recognized, they just think you're, you know, skipping school. Yeah, yeah. I experienced that a bit here, but also growing up here, I feel like every single day from the age of like four in kindergarten, the bus would take me at noon to the resort and I would go ski. And, yeah. and it was every day through high school. Yeah. Pretty incredible. It was, it was amazing. It was some of the happiest times of my life, actually. It was I only went to Squaw Valley Academy for a year and a half, but life was so simple. Mm -hmm. You had your homework and you had chores as a dorm student stack wood, do dishes, whatever it might be, and skiing, yeah. that's it. And if you had better grades, you got to ski for another hour. Cause oh, you, cause you got incentive. Yeah, because you got to miss study hall. So, I mean, there was no taxes and <laughs> thoughts of my future and all this adulting. It was just wonderful, simple life. It was great. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And you met Shane when you were 14, you said? I actually met him in Alta, Utah. We were skiing a gray day, not an interesting ski day, snow-wise uh, or weather-wise. And my friend and I were noticing these two guys that were kind of on the opposite lap of the same chair, and then we were doing the same stuff as them. And eventually we started skiing together and immediately, I mean, I'm 14 and Shane would be 25, but immediately we just got into heated conversations about ski boots, boot cuff height, um, boot design, skis, this and that other thing. He was of course on Valance at the time, but we just, here's a 25 year old and a 14 year old just geeking out super hard, you know, right when they've first started to interact about gear. Um, and that was, that was in at the time, I didn't think anything about it, but in hindsight, I'm just kind of thinking to myself, well, I don't typically ride chairlifts with young teens and have technical conversations about gear. That's not, yeah. that doesn't happen to me when I'm just skiing at Palisades Tahoe. Um, so it's kind of a unique thing. Um, and I was living in the dorm and 
every once in a while, Shane would, would, I would ski with him a little bit here and there and he would give me a ride home, um, from back to the dorm from the mountain. Um, but you know, we weren't really friends. Uh, we were just, you know, ski buddies, I guess. But you got to remember too, Shane was extremely late bloomer, right? Mm. You know, so he was at 25 years old, he was probably, um, you know, more like 20. Right. And you see that in Ayla for sure. She's 17 going on 14. Yeah, absolutely. And Sherry also was a late bloomer, but you know, now we're getting sidetracked. But anyways, um, yeah. But the, the pivotal moment was one day when I was skiing with Jeff McKittrick and Shane and maybe somebody else. It was a Tuesday at 11 a.m. or something. And we skied off the backside down to Alpine Meadows. So ducking ropes, breaking some rules. These guys are smoking pot in this house. <laughs> somebody was going to give us a ride. And finally I got a ride back to, I had to go to school, right? I'm wearing a collar shirt. Like I'm sharp as a razor, ready to go to class. And I'm just looking at these guys like, what do these guys do? They just ski in their day away. It's Tuesday. These guys, <laughs> these guys are bums. Like, how do they make it work? And so I just asked, like, what do you guys do? And Jeff said something about construction in the summer. And Shane just looked at me and he said, I'm a rock star pro skier, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I just think, wow. This dude just gets to do this all the time. Just waste his afternoons away. I got to go to class, you know. And and I was like, oh, well, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, for sure, hundred percent. Before meeting Shane, did you have any idea that that was a possibility? Uh yeah. I mean, of course, I idolized Scott Schmidt and John Freeman, and there was people on the cover of Powder Magazine, and I um. I figured that they were living the life, right? They were living the dream, but I didn't, I didn't think it was attainable until that moment that Shane said that. And part of that was that I just thought I was good enough. I could follow this guy. I could ski where I was, I was young and probably pretty dumb and, and cocky. And I was I, anywhere he was going to go, I was going to go. There was no, I was not going to back down. Right? Yeah. You know, I, I I, I can do it. I, I'm going. It's gonna be fine. And I got in a couple of pickles. I do remember getting stuck a couple of times and having <laughs> having the kind of down climb or whatever. But it worked out. Yeah, absolutely. I like in the in the beginning of our conversation how you're like humble beginnings. I was a spoiled son of a surgeon, and <laughs> well, that really tickled my ego. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people people love to deny the ego motivation, but. I like how you're just forward with it. Yeah, yeah it's, totally. It's it's great. Yeah, it's part of what motivates all of us. I mean, look at who was president of the United States recently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so. I think well, most professional athletes have have a inflated ego a little bit. Yeah. Because it makes people driven and motivated and they think they're the best, so they're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, well, and there's this, all on our phones, we have this constant source of affirmation, mm -hmm. right? You can put up really just average to lame content and you're gonna get a whole bunch of people saying, whoa, good for you. 
You're great. <laughs> I remember very early when I was, uh, when I had just started Instagram, I, uh, I was about to make a post and then didn't, didn't make the post and put my phone in my pocket and picked it up a little while later. And I had posted a photo of my thigh. It was like the phone was in my pocket. It was basically just orange and gray or something. I don't know. It was just a pocket post. And I don't know if it was a caption at all. I'm like, wow, 85 people pressed like. <laughs> what a bunch of losers. <laughs> like the bar is set pretty low here. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Okay. So you meet Shane. You kind of find this dream of being a pro skier. And how did that happen? How did you garner your first sponsorships? So I was. I was a driven little kid, um, and I knew that I had to make it in skiing right away because my parental sponsorships were going to end at 18 and it was time to go to school, um, time to go to college. And I would have loved to have been a racer. Down a racer would have been the dream. That's just super badass. I think it's the most badass form of, form of skiing. Um, but I knew those guys, they really kind of get traction in their careers in like mid twenties, you know, mm -hmm. you don't have the 18 year old American downhiller. Right? Yeah. At least we haven't yet to my knowledge. Um, and at the time mogul skiing was, was cool. You know, Johnny Mosley and his brothers on the freestyle team. And those guys were incredible. Um, and my dad's best friend was the freestyle team coach. So I was a freestyle skier, but the problem was I was a fifth place guy, mm. you know, Tony Basile, Travis Ramos, um, Chris Hernandez, Travis Woodcock. I mean, these guys were good. Far West was stacked in whatever we were, J2 or something age group. And, you know, these guys, so I'm fifth place, me and Ryan Fagan are fourth and fifth place. Ryan was a freestyle skier? Yeah. And, and there we are back fourth, fifth, sixth, but the guys who are beating us are on the podium at nationals. Yeah. Right. So I really was pretty convinced. And, and the other thing about that era in mobile skiing is anybody who was paying attention knew Johnny Moses was going to win a gold medal. I watched that run in Nagano of his. It was like watching a replay because I absolutely knew mm -hmm. that he was winning. So you see this, those guys have it, but I don't, mm. right? That is not going to work. There's no turning this into that, no matter the training, but freestyle team ended at three and then there was an hour and I would go ski K222 during that hour, um, an hour until the lift clothes that is and when i would ski kt22 i'd see all these guys jumping cliffs and skiing steeps mind you we're still on skinny skis um and and i thought well i, I can do that you know and there was starting to be these competitions in free ride skiing you know big mountain skiing and i thought i can do that you know i, I can i can hug these cliffs and all this stuff um and so I was just following guys around. 
And Jeff Angerbretson had a daughter named Amy, and he was always skiing that last hour of the day. And uh, Jeff Jeff taught me a lot about skiing, like initiating turns, turn placement, angulation, all this technical stuff that wasn't really taught back then. You got taught how to race or you got taught how to mobile ski, but there wasn't really any of that. And Jeff taught me a lot. Um, but so I just thought, well, I'm all in on that. And lo and behold, the fat ski revolution happened, then the twin tips. And the thing about fat skis was I was already familiar with fat skis because uh, my dad took me helicopter skiing when I was 14 years old somewhere. And I, we had rental atomic powder pluses. So when Shane started using those, I was like, oh yeah, those, those do rip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I was quick on that one. Um, early adopter of fat skis, pretty decent with some tricks, right? Once twin tip skis and all this stuff started happening um, and hard working, right? I would go to the camps and train super hard in the summer um, to get some tricks and, and just I figured it out and made it. But I guess I went on a little tangent there, but the, um, the way I actually did it was I put stamps on envelopes and, and sent letters to sponsors. Mm-hmm. I tried to get sponsored outreach. I, I just said, Hey, I won these competitions and I sure do like your goggles. <laughs> Here's my photo. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and, uh, and I just tried and I, t- I called, we had a pay phone in the, um, dormitory and we, I would take the phone book and I would look at, I would look at powder magazine, see who was taking the photos of Tahoe people. And then I would look up that name in the phone book and I would call them and leave them a message. Hey, my name is JT Holmes. I live in the dormitory at Squaw Valley Academy. And if you need anybody to take photos of this week, this is my number. Ask for JT. You got to talk to my dorm parents. And uh, by the way, I ski every single day. So any day you want to go out and shoot photos, I'll go with you. Wow. You know, and I like Chaco Mole or Hank DeVry, um, whoever else it was. Just, you know what? And I was not aggressive, but persistent. Didn't hear back. Calling them again. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, and then after a while, I'd be like, if you just tell me no, I'll stop leaving you messages. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, yeah. Out with Hank. Out with whoever. Just started to get photos published. Yeah. 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 Went out on a Warren Miller movie that year, 1995. So I love that. I love that. Quite the little hustler in high school. Persistence pays off though. I think people get deterred by reaching out and just putting yourself out there. I hate it. I hate reaching out. Right. Reaching out with resumes and all that, but you have to do it. Yeah, you do. I still do it. Yeah, you have to do it. Yeah, it's part of business. It is. It's not my favorite part of business, but it's a critical part of the business. Yep, yep. And then you had a breakthrough performance in 1998 with Matchstick. Did Shane get you in with Matchstick? Nope. They got a letter with a, a stamp on an envelope. <laughs> and uh, I remember actually I was in, I was at Scott Gaffney's house when Murray called and said, I got this letter from this dude named JT. And he's like, oh yeah, he's right here. No way. Yeah. And then they gave me a shot. Yeah. And it worked out. 
Yep. Worked out. And 30s. And I had been actually already on a TGR shoot Mm -hmm. uh, in New Zealand, but we got skunked. Took Um, me like 19 years into my career working with Mashtick to like little dip in TGR's film last year. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of a bucket list thing. I was like, I'd really really? like to work with those guys. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, they're great. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. So then 30 ski films later, like Mm -hmm. you've been in every freaking ski film. Fair amount of ski films. Yeah. Hey, think about it, though. It's not that many. I I don't know how many it's been, maybe three dozen or something. But there's sometimes you just have a quick appearance. Sometimes you have a full segment. Sometimes you went and filmed for a week. Sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time. Your home ski resort, Palisades Tahoe, there's cameras everywhere. Yeah. Boom, you nail a line, you're in a movie. Um, but over the course of it's a bunch of years there, too. Um, and there was a lot of years where I did a couple couple a year. Um, and uh, they're fun to make. Did you continue competing in the Freeride World Tour? So it's interesting. I, I actually went back in 1998 as a 17-year-old. I won the North American – no, I didn't win. I got second in the um, North American Free Skiing Championships, Kirkwood. And then I started making movies and kind of stepped away. But then I went back to it after Shane died because I was a little bit over the um, the uh, parachute stuff. I was a little, just a little bit less psyched and just really threw myself back into my skiing. And I knew that the thing about making movies is it's way easier than beating people in competitions. Mm-hmm. Way easier. You get to choose a line and it's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. By the time you actually get there, it's going to look the same as when you put your binoculars on it or took a photograph with your phone. Right. Right. Whereas free ride competition, you got 30 people that are going to ski that mountain before you. They might, it might just be annihilated, just bomb holes. Right. I remember when you dipped back in. Right. I, I remember this classic moment on the Verbier Extreme. Oh, yeah. Well, when I crashed or the. Yeah. Yeah. That was so nice. Yeah, that was after three more years of competing. So, it, but that, so I went back in and I, did pretty well. I got fourth at Verbier. I got a second somewhere, I think, or a third. I don't know, but I never won. That was mm-hmm. the problem. I never freaking won. And so I went into this last year of competing and I just, I just skied with heart. I didn't care about where I ranked overall. Mm-hmm. Sometimes guys or girls will ski a little bit more conservatively and just not fall because they just want to stay in the game. They want to stay on the tour. They, they really, they're, they're looking at their points and stuff. I just wanted to be the best one time, one day. That's it. All I cared about. Just, I want to stand on top of the podium. It's never happened. I've been skiing for 17 friggin' years or something, right? Never won. I gained notoriety by getting second and third. And in the beginning it was second or fourth or whatever, but I was also 10 years younger than everybody. Yeah. So that worked out for me, but I wanted to win one. So I was charging, right? I was not skiing to get second place. And at Verbier, there was this line and I just, it kind of called to me and I thought, wow, that's, that looks, that looks pretty cool over there. And the really steep, scary side of the mountain that nobody ever goes to. And uh, so I decided I was going to ski this thing and uh, it turned out, Xavier of the street was also skiing that line. Mm. And he, um, 
he snowboarded amazing. Um, and he had these clear goggles. I was like, man, it's sunny out. What's that guy wearing clear goggles for? And the minute I dropped into this shady North face, all steep, I was thinking, oh, fish, that's why this guy's wearing clear <laughs> goggles. So I got a bit disoriented. It's kind of flat light, ended up a little slow. Just, I was right on my line, but just a little bit hesitant and my tails kind of touched rock and took a little bit off balance. And I, I knew that I was very exposed at the top of this huge mountain. So I needed to go to the left and I went to the left, 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 and then just high sided mm -hmm. and tomahawked a very long way, uh, 1300, maybe 15, 1600 vertical feet, a long way. Um, had a lot of time to think about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any injuries? Uh, I was injured, yes. Um, I, <clears throat> I fortunately did not slam into any rocks. Yeah. The big problem with, with Tom hawking down a mountainside is when you pinball off of a wall in the game pinball, right? The ball rolls down and it changes direction, right? When it highly possible on that face too. Yeah. You don't want to do that. Right. You can tumble over rocks all the time, but when you, kind of smash into them is not the ideal situation. So um, luckily I had a clean, lengthy fall. I waved my arms and told people that I was good to go. That's the signal. If you're okay, you wave. If you're not okay, you don't do anything. Um, <clears throat> and, but I, I was rushed to the hospital because they were like, that's kind of fucked up, man. You, you gotta go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. and I, I'm fine. I'm fine. And so they wanted to put me in this helicopter. I said, look, I'll go to the hospital if you want, but I'll have my friend drive me because I don't want to pay for this helicopter. They said they'd pay for it. So they flew me to the helicopter to the hospital. Of course, two months later, I get a bill. I call Nicholas Halewitz. Hey, buddy, remember that one time when you said you were going to pay for this helicopter? <laughs> he said, yep, I remember it. He paid it. Oh, good. But uh, I, could, I was really banged up and I could not walk. Um, everything hurt. Every injury I'd ever had in my life. The wrist that I broke when I was a kid on a bicycle, the, the ankle that I twisted once base jumping, every single thing hurt, but there was no new injuries. Um, and then, and so Timmy was pushing me around in a wheelchair um, all the way, you know, we were like, we're getting out of here. <laughs> we are leaving. This is not where we want to be. So we just went to the airport um, and, uh, just walked up with all our bags to Swiss Airlines and said, we got to go home. And they said, okay, that'll be this much money. And we looked at them and said, we don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we just kind of sat there, dude. One dude's in a wheelchair and Timmy in his sweatpants with like brown crap in his teeth and, you know, greasy hair. We're just kind of there, kind of in the way, standoff of wills. And they, uh, and eventually they just caved, just put us on the airplane. Sent no us home. way. Yeah, didn't charge us anything. No Not way. even for all our extra bags. Oh, my Sent gosh. us home. And lo and behold, by the time I got to San Francisco, I could walk. I just rested for a while, and I walked through customs. And then... That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and then I walked through customs, and there's my parents. Oh, shoot. They heard. They saw it. I guess. I don't know. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> was this around the time where you had unofficial networks as a sponsor? Yeah. Talk mm -hmm. about that seemed like a pretty dreamy situation for you and Timmy. Yeah, it was it was it was cool to unofficial networks and they're still around. I think Snowbrains is kind of what it's evolved to and um unofficial networks was this was tech boom stuff, right? Um Patrick Ravelli, savvy investor, he really passionate skier, great guy, believed in this website, you know, being the source for media and sales and you know, then, and he founded along with Tim Conrad and others, this unofficial networks. And there was, um, there was a lot of support there. <clears throat> and my, my ideal with them was that they were, they would pay for the, um, free world tour stops. Um, and Timmy had the same deal. Mm -hmm. And so we cruised around the world, uh, together and it was fun. And we brought our parachutes and, if it wasn't good at home, we would just stay until the next stop and just run a muck around Europe with base rigs and uh, special times, you know? It was special times. I remember yeah. I wasn't on the same level of sponsorship, I feel like, as you guys were, but I just like got a call, want to meet for dinner, go down to dinner and get handed a check under the table. <laughs> and I was like, okay. This is, yeah. this is how it's going to go. No contract, no nothing. Just here's a check. Yeah. And then... And then the faucet went dry and it was really interesting to see how people behaved at that time mm -hmm. when the money went away. Um, and it didn't even go away actually. It just, it just, the faucet turned off till, till our investor, our supporter was able to hustle up some funds. There was a pause, but it was pretty messed up behavior that I witnessed out of some of the individuals, right? Mm. You know, I'm a professional. I've been around the block. I've had sponsors drop me. I've had sponsors give me raises when I've had a blown ACL, everything. I've, I've, I've been, I know how to conduct myself and I just sent invoices regularly, followed up with a phone call, followed up with an email, never a harsh word, but never falling off radar. Um, what are you gonna do? Yeah. Right? And throughout that whole time, I had communication with, um, with our, our funding supporter and I got paid. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was a lot of money because I, Timmy didn't have any money. Right. He was living in a closet. So I was fronting all of our travel expenses. Right. You know, I had 30,000 of his dollars on my bill. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> right. So, it, it, you know, it was a lot of money. Yeah. And I was paid. And I, I never faltered at, at holding up my end of the agreement. But, geez, there was a lot of people who did some, you know, start bashing a company that's treated you so well. Yeah. You know? I not, mean, not to the cool. extent of, like, purchasing a home under the tram. Right. And, and yeah. giving people a roof over their heads. Giving people a roof over their head. And then people are selling the furniture, you know? It's like, what? Don't yeah. do that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so taking it back a bit, you started base jumping. When did you start base jumping? June 22nd, 2000, 2002. Big numbers guy. Yeah. Well, and it was the day after my birthday. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Turned 22, got on a plane, 
with Charles, Aaron McGovern, Jeff McKittrick, Chris Davenport. Uh, and we just went and had a weekend of base jumping. Base jumping? Yeah. In Idaho? Base jumping in Idaho. Summertime, summer solstice. Yeah. Doesn't get dark till 10. Um, woke up in Palisades, Tahoe. Got on a plane. Watched the, flew to Twin Falls, Idaho. This was on a buddy's plane. Um, watched these guys jump off this bridge. Looked pretty basic. Um, and and then around 7 p.m., it was my turn. <clears throat> Shirtless. Got some shoes. I'm ready to get wet. Jump off the bridge. Throw the little pilot chute. Whammo, it opens. Steer down to the water. No big deal. Right? Is that your first time ever with a parachute? When I was 13, I was at Mogul Skiing Camp in New Zealand, and I did a tandem skydive. But yeah, I didn't steer. I didn't know anything. You know, this was this was essentially my first experience with parachutes. Um, and it was it was it was it's just a piece of cake, right? Just yeah. Put your right hand down, you turn right. Put your left hand down, you turn left. Put them both down. That's how you land. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. And gravity is. It's very predictable. It's you know something you can bet on what it's going to happen. Um, airborne sports are easy. You know people like to put themselves on pedestals. You know they're extreme sports people and they do this radical stuff and risk their life. It's easy, right? Gravity does all the work. If you want to <laughs> climb up El Cap? Okay, you could. You couldn't do it, right? You couldn't just go do what Alex Honnold does. Yeah. Not a friggin' chance. But I guarantee if you and I went to Yosemite, you could do a base jump off our cap. You will fall. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> yeah. And if you do three or four things right, you probably live. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's not a difficult thing um, to fall through this guy. Yeah. But Was it's a Shane hell of a fun involved? thing. Was Shane involved with base jumping before you? Oh, yeah. Shin was already base jumping. Yeah. And I'd been with him base jumping, um, you know, support crew, driving him around, climbing around on bridges. Um, so I understand. I understood what was going on. But, you know, these guys just decided that all this hullabaloo, all this waiting till you have a certain number of skydives, all this experience, like all these rules, that was just... That was for the birds, right? Mm, mm-hmm. These guys were throwing their girlfriends off bridges and they were just having a time. And Shane had a rule for a while. If you were going to point a camera at him, you had to jump off the bridge too. No way. Yeah. <laughs> That's how Nate Abbott ended up jumping, hey? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, that whole mentality of, of oh, yeah, you, sh- you, know, you don't need experience to go base jumping is actually now – we. A couple things happened, and we moved away from it pretty quick. Fair, yeah, <laughs> yeah like, <laughs> to say the least. The people who got got in and out of that one unscathed should should feel pretty grateful. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's how it started. Can you and talk about at like- the time? I so you know we're sleeping in underneath this bridge, just a bunch of dirt bags. I had a sleeping bag on the grass, right? I didn't have a pillow, nothing. And, but 
and my mind is just running. I'm just thinking, man, this is so cool. This is it. The race is on, right? Aaron McGovern, Chris Davenport, Othar Lawrence, all these guys that, that came and did their first base jumps. I thought we were all just going to get started. Mm -hmm. I thought, I thought it was just, um, this, this major epiphany, just thinking I can do all this stuff. Wingsuits and ski base jumping, all that stuff was, was suddenly went from bucket list to now list. And I thought the race was on, but Aaron McGovern didn't do anything about it. Chris didn't do anything about it. Jeff McKittrick didn't do anything about it. Nobody pursued it except me. And at the time I was going to summer school in Utah. So I was living in Utah. Um, and <clears throat> I was working at the Utah Olympic Park, training kids, doing backflips or whatever. Uh, but Twin Falls wasn't far away for me. And so I just went there. And oh, uh, by the way, I bought, I bought gear off the internet. Um, there was one manufacturer during the purchasing process who just wouldn't sell me anything because they thought, well, you don't even know the vocabulary right. of this stuff. And um, we later became friends, but I drove to Auburn to buy a base rig and I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. And they kind of sniffed me out for the rookie that I was. And they said, well, we can't sell this to you. It's a moral issue. Mm. And I said to the guy, well, look, man, for you, it's morals or ethics or something. But for me, it's errands. And I drove an hour and a half to do this errand. And now I'm going to drive away without completing the errand. So I'm a little annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> Did they sell it? No. No, yeah, okay. No, they wouldn't give it to me. But I bought gear on the internet, and I bought gear from a friend, and uh, and I went to the bridge by myself without a clue of having to pack, how to pack parachutes, but I'd seen Shane do these rollover jumps. These We called them McConkeys. We just dangle the, jump, the bridge and jump off, dangle the parachute off the bridge and just jump out over it in a front flip, and it pops up, works great. Um, so my plan was to do that. But happened to meet a um, Australian couple there, and these guys, they had an absolute jalopy of a car. Like it, you would not place a bet on it to go two miles. And um, I had a truck, right? And they had no money, and I had some money. So this guy Jimmy, who was one of the best base jumpers in the world was just packing my parachute for 20 bucks and teaching me all kinds of stuff. And he, after a little while, figured out that I had zero experience, but he didn't really care because he was making 20 bucks a pack job. Right. And getting rides to different places, right? So it was this kind of mutually beneficial relationship that didn't really evolve to a friendship for a long time. Um, so my first 50 base jumps were with, typically with, with, Jimmy and and his girlfriend Shara, um, and uh, it was interesting. It was kind of, you know, you got these dirtbag Aussies just <laughs> crashing out with me wherever I go. Mm -hmm. But I was learning a ton, and Jimmy was amazing. He was six foot eight and about a hundred and fifty pounds, so this dude could really fly a wingsuit, and he was your typical, very risk-willing Australian base jumper. Aussies are hardcore. 
they where they jump the landing areas are gnarly there's wild animals that are trying to kill Salt you as well it's everything yeah <laughs> these guys are just hard, more hardcore than us yeah and he you know just chip on his shoulder hell-bent on being the best at a, at a sport that the best wasn't even really a thing because there wasn't competitions or anything mm-hmm. um but yeah he uh he taught me how to base jump right people think shane taught me how but really shane just introduced me how yeah that's what i was thinking yeah it's cool to shane would not have taught me actually he wasn't interested no, in but once out. i was off to the races there was no stopping me yeah. you know yeah and and it only took so that was i did my first jump with shane in june i met the uh australians actually it wasn't until august that i started school again at university of utah and i met the australians in september and that whole fall i learned from them and then come january 15th of 2003 shane and i went ski base jumping at lover's leap mm-hmm. and that was that was a day we were i mean we were so charged up after that it was just incredible we were just and here's shane has you know done all this you know he's been base jumping for years and done all this research and stuff all that, you know not research but he really was figuring out how to do it right and mm-hmm. not die and all this stuff and and being patient and this was his dream and then i just oh cool <laughs> that looks fun here we go that's what i do i follow you <laughs> you know yeah um and uh it worked out good was that like the first ski base jump ever or? no not at all no this was um, happening no ski base so shannon and i and roner and whoever else was kind of um running amok in the hills with us with skis and parachutes we popularized ski base jumping. We did not pioneer it. Mm-hmm. Everybody likes to say we we're airborne sports pioneers, and yeah, we, we you know we did some stuff, but we didn't have covered wagons and go across plains and kitten you know battles with Indians. You know, we were not pioneers. We just made stuff popular because we were repeating it all the time, mm-hmm. and we were bringing cameras. Um, ski base before Shane and I, it was a one-off thing. It was, you know. There was a Pepsi commercial that a guy did a really cool one in um, the uh, in Italy, and then there was some Frenchies that did the Eiger, and there was of course Rick Sylvester from here who did the uh, James Bond stunt. I think it was the Spy Who Loved Me, um, and he went off Mount Asgard in Baffin Island, uh, Union Jack parachute, super cool. Uh, but these were one-off stunts, right? This is, you know, and whereas we were just, okay, look at that cliff. Let's go. Um, not a lot of planning. I mean, not that we were blase about it. We would always figure out if we had enough altitude and all this, but I mean, we were really good at skiing. You know, we were, we may have been the best skiers that started tackling this activity. Yeah. Um, so that helped. Yeah. And we could really read mountains and and we were comfortable in the air. So we just started charging. Pretty amazing. It was fun. Yeah, fun times. You guys used to tell me like these wild stories about some of the more uh, coveted jumps. I'll say that. I don't know how you want to call them, but mm. I don't know if there's any that like stand out to you, but just the like escaping and like 
watching and gr running ground crew like you were talking about for Shane? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, when you're base jumping and your skills are sharp and you're going up onto the fourth tallest man-made structure in the world and you're running off of it, taking 10 running strides and then free falling for 11 seconds and then laughing and high-fiving and then getting back in the elevator and going and doing it again and again. And you're just, I mean, you're living. You're, you, you just feel like you're in the place to be. And there was a whole bunch of years there before people started dying where it was just like, yeah. You know, in, in hindsight, it was this ignorance is bliss phase. Right. But it just all made sense. You know, we were, we were, we were on top of the world. Yeah. You know, literally. Um, and, you know, whether it was an antenna jump or, I mean, watching the sunset on Half Dome and then jumping off. And then you're at Mirror Lake in a minute. And you're back in your car in 20 minutes, you know, a beer tastes good. <laughs> you sleep deep. You, you, you have great conversations on a drive home, you know? Yeah. All is right in the world. It's yeah. great. It's fun stuff. Really fun. Quick shout out to Peak Skis, founded by Bodie Miller, for supporting the show. As a direct-to-consumer company, Peak is committed to knowing and serving our customers through direct interaction. There's no middleman. If you call us, we answer the phone and we talk about skiing. We want you to have more fun and to be able to ski better, more easily. It's been really fun lately hearing the feedback on these skis as they're getting out into the world and people are absolutely loving them. Today, I'm highlighting the Peak 104 SC as that's my favorite pair of Peak skis. And I've been putting them through the tests lately with all the snow we've been receiving here in Tahoe. It's kind of my quiver killer. I use them on slope and I also have a pair mounted up for backcountry. I love the playfulness of the ski and it's become my one ski quiver. If you like a slightly stiffer tail and all around ski, hit the 104s. Um, I've got the SC, which is the side country version. It's a little bit more lightweight, and I find them to be a bit more playful. Loving them. Check them out. Taking a moment to thank one of our sponsors, Arcteryx. Arcteryx has built something beautiful, and now they're just refining it. This company is pushing the envelope on what you can do to close the loop on sustainability with their Rebird program. If you haven't heard about this, you got to check it out. You can send in your unused gear, and they will assess it and then potentially resell it and send you a gift card. And I think almost more importantly, their gear is just built to last. I've been doing a ton of storm riding lately, and there's no better way to test your gear than being out there in the elements day after day, especially with this atmospheric river that is currently hitting Lake Tahoe two in a row. Um, I've been completely dry and comfortable this entire time. It's the highest performing gear, and it's made to last you for plenty of adventures, stormy pow days, or wherever your jacket may take you. I remember one time you let me borrow a GoPro for something and you had a card in there and I went to like clear the card before I, and I asked you and I put it on my hard drive. Actually, I probably still have this shot, but there was like footage of you. And I think it was a Red Bull Air Force jumping out of a helicopter in some lush, like Austria or Norway or something. And I watched it and it like all clicked for me. I was like, I totally get this. This looks like the most fun thing in the world. Y'all were flying in formation with like smoke coming off your ankles and stuff. And it, and I was like, my, I was mesmerized. I must've watched the clip like 30 times. 
And I was like, this is it. Like, this is so cool. It was, it was like very much like, yeah, yeah. I feel like I almost took that step. Yeah, it's because fun. of you. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. And then you guys combined like base jumping and skiing. And what led you to the Iger and the like incredibly complicated mm. descent of Iger? So in 2004, Shane and I ski based the Iger. We did it for a movie, a matchstick movie. Um, and I think it was a ski movie. And anyway, 2004, we based up, we ski based the Iger, but we got out of the helicopter about 400 vertical feet above our spot where we were going to ski off the cliff. And then our parachutes were open in 400 feet later. So we used 800 feet of the mountain. And this mountain is 6,000 feet of just beautiful terrain and steep cliffs and just, you know, legends and myths and lies and awesome stuff right so we decided or well anyway shane dies but you know we had looked at this mountain thinking wouldn't it be cool if you could go from the top wouldn't it be cool if you could ski that whole three thousand feet down to the to the uh exit point or whatever um, and we talked about different things of opening a parachute and then you could go land and then cut it away. And then you could do another ski base jump all on one mountain. We talked about things like that, but that never happened. Um, and then Shane died and then I discovered speed riding and I found speed riding because of Antoine Montant, which I could tell stories for, for days about him, but, uh, you know, his 2008 segment in the movie claim by magic productions was mind-blowing and inspirational for me um and anyway speed riding much safer than ski base jumping much smarter way to combine skiing and flying um and equally as fun um really great form of recreation um, speed riding if you're ever thinking about doing it i highly suggest doing it the easiest place to learn is ataka Speed riding school in Balfour's France costs about a thousand bucks. You'll be flying, skiing. It's wonderful. Easy sport also. Right turn, left turn, land, piece of cake. Um, but uh, so speed riding, I started and I kind of had another one of these light bulb moments of, whoa, this is how you could go off the top of the Iger. And this is how you could get down to the western flank and then you could cut away speed wing and then you could ski off and then you could do what shane and i were doing which was terminal ski base jumps which means you are going off of the cliff skiing off the cliff and then disconnecting your skis and the reason we disconnect the skis is because uh, this the wind will mess up your body position right the wind of all your speed the relative wind because you're flying through the air it takes your skis and puts you upside down. You see it happen with Julian Carr, Jamie Pierre, all these knuckleheads jumping off these huge cliffs with their skis on, they all end up landing on their heads, right? It's not mm -hmm. ideal. Um, and so, but if you disconnect the skis, you can fly away from them and you can do a 20 second free fall or whatever. Uh, so that's what Shane and I were doing with our wingsuits and our skis. And that was wonderful until it wasn't. But uh, we, but I realized that I could speed ride from the top 
and I could ski and deliver myself to the Western flank and then ski off the Geneva pillar and then disconnect my skis and then fly all the way down and use all 6,000 feet. And it was this culmination of my three favorite sports. And I just set my mind on doing it. And the, the thing about Switzerland is it's a wonderful place to hang out. Right. And I hung out there and I trained in my three favorite sports. Um, so I had fun every day doing it. And, you know, even if that goal hadn't ever come to pass, um, you know, there's that cheesy saying of, you know, it's not the destination, it's the journey. I'm more of a destination guy personally. I like to fly or ski the mountain if I'm going to hike up there. Um, I love hiking. Don't get me wrong, but um, I I'm a destination guy. Um, so, but in this case, the journey was wonderful, right? Feasting your eyes on um, one of the most beautiful mountains in the world with binoculars, in the name of scouting for some, you know, audacious descent that may or may not happen. Um, it was pretty fun. So it was, it was, you know, it was a lot of dedication, but you know, this was, this was a well chosen objective, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was pretty incredible. If you guys haven't watched the 60 minutes with, it was with Anderson Cooper. Anderson right? Cooper. Yeah. Taking on the Iger. Yeah. And shout out to Anderson. I mean, this guy is a class act, right? Mm -hmm. First of all, he's believed in this being a story and, I had this whole situation where I needed the snow to be right and the wind to be right and call them in and, and, you know, align with the, you know, a celebrity's schedule and all this stuff had, all these things had to come together. And, and he was patient. He just said, when it's going to happen, we'll let us know. We'll be there. Right. Um, which is pretty cool. And then he showed up and he was absolutely fascinating individual interesting guy and we shared some fun 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 stories off camera and all that but what really won my heart was when we were done with the last interview we both just bolted to the airport i'd been in switzerland for way too long and um wanted to get home and he's anderson cooper so he had stuff going and typically when you're in a van with a celebrity and you go to the airport you, they get dropped off first right and, you know, their whole program first and then yours is second. And we were both super tight. He had an hour exactly. I had 48 minutes to get on this plane. And not only did AC drop me off first, but he threw a huge ski bag over his shoulder, walked it upstairs and checked me in. Wow. Yep. Yep. And then he did a shout out to Abro um, on video. No way. Yeah. That's Because awesome. Abro had gotten hurt the same day I did the Iger. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, our friend Jason Abraham, um, if anybody's not familiar, um, he had a spinal cord injury uh, yeah. skiing. So That's pretty special. Yeah. And you mentioned it, and I, I kind of do want to touch on it, but um, you were with Shane when he passed. I was, yeah. Yeah, and you guys were in Italy in 2009? March 26, 2009. Yep. Um, we were all fired up you know we were doing our thing we had some red bull budget and we were just in the dolomites gorgeous place um and the day before we skied this amazing couloir and then both did base jumps off i did a ski wingsuit ski base he did a normal ski base 
Um, and woke up the next day, all fired up, uh, went to Sasportoy, a uh, beautiful place. If you haven't been there, I returned there recently. Um, and there's a reason that we went there. The place is rad. And we, it took us, everything kind of took us a while that day, uh, building the jump, getting there. You had to traverse some pretty exposed terrain. It was icy and avalanche prone and all that stuff. And the guides were, we were happy we had guides. And we got there and um, made a kicker uh, off this cliff, skis, wingsuits. Um, I can get into as many particulars as you want about all the factors that led to the horrible outcome of him dying. But um, the gist of it is I went first, landed. I had actually an extremely close call um, on my jump. I opened my parachute really low um, because I was surprised that the cliff was just not as big as we had kind of felt that it would be. Um, and so I opened low, but I knew Shane was going to go right away. Um, I landed, I took my helmet off my camera and just filmed, uh, but he never came. And I'm thinking, what the heck? I, I guess I messed up because I almost died and maybe that freaked out the camera crew or the guides got pissed or something. Um, but my low pull maybe messed everything up. And so, I'm thinking I must've messed up and I don't know why Shane hasn't gone. And then suddenly there's another helicopter and I'm thinking, oh, must've been an air traffic control issue. And then this helicopter goes to basically the bottom of the cliff and is there for a minute and a half and gone. And I later learned that in that minute and a half, they just zipped him up and flew him away. Um, so I walked, Shane and I had one radio between us. I walked down to the road, Dan Campbell um, told me what happened. I didn't believe him. I made him show me the footage through the viewfinder. Uh, went uh, dry heaved in a snowbank and uh, drove home. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that's a short story. Yeah. And from that point on, it kind of changed your relationship with base jumping, did it not? Yeah, yeah, that was the beginning of, of everybody dying. Yeah. That was the end of, that was an abrupt end to the ignorance is bliss phase. Yeah. Um, the, I just, I wasn't super fired up, of course, right away. Um, but the, um, but I didn't know if I was done, but I just had no desire for a while. Um, I went home and was spent time at home. It was wonderful to be home and skiing and, and just kind of, you know, dealing, I guess. And, uh, the, the desire to base jump kind of came back a little bit. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe I'm not done. 
And I remembered that this guy, Tom Anderson from 60 Minutes had called me before Shane died. Um, and actually we went and had lunch together in San Francisco. Um, and Tom Anderson was a producer for 60 Minutes. And he wanted to do a piece on wingsuit flying. And I was the guy he found. He called me up and wanted to do it with me. I met him, we hit it off, we made a plan. Then Shane goes and dies. And I was gonna bring Shane in on this 60 Minutes thing. Um, and it would have been good exposure for both of us, whatever. But, you know, Shane died. And then after a little while, I thought, you know, maybe I'm not done. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I should call that guy Tom back because that was probably a pretty cool opportunity. And if I'm not done, then I should do it. Um, and so I wanted to be sure I was still in. <sighs> So I went to Yosemite and uh, I climbed the Leaning Tower, which is where Shane met Shane's mentor died. Um, or no, he didn't die there. He died in the river. But Shane's mentor was the only person who'd ever jumped this cliff called the Leaning Tower. And I went up there with my buddy Evo and uh, slept on top and watched the sunrise in beautiful friggin' California. And... Uh, jumped off and felt good, felt right. And called Tom Anderson. Three weeks later, I'm in Norway flying wingsuits for national coverage. Um, didn't really think too much about it. Mm -hmm. But in fact, that summer, I did think a lot about it. Um, I had bad insomnia and homesickness and all kinds of stuff going on. Um, but around summer solstice, when we shot the 60 minutes piece, my head was on pretty straight and I, I was having fun with my buddies. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a cool piece called, um, the Birdman, I think. Um, uh, and that was, uh, with Steve Croft, who's also a fascinating newsman. Mm -hmm. And over the course of <clears throat> our relationship, um, losing friends together, like you've always been someone who kind of put my head on straight. Like you've been there and understanding and more than anyone very helpful with the advice that you've given and and with the kind of like lining me up with a clear path forward like losing timmy i remember being with you and you mm -hmm. completely changed the way that i grieved and it was so incredibly helpful yeah, we, we were very tight then that you. was nice yeah 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 i remember you made me write down my calendar and you were like cross all this shit out. You don't have to do anything right now. Like you just need to be with me here in our community and be together. And, and I think that I've always resorted back to that. Unfortunately, we've lost a lot of friends and, and I think everyone deals with grieving differently, but yeah, maybe you've had more practice than most. And yeah, well, we got onto this topic. Yeah. The question was, about you, you said that was the moment 
when you, you referred to Shane's death and you, as the moment that my relationship with bass jumping changed and um, that started it. But then and my next friend, best friend became Tim Dutton. He died in a skydive accident. Um, he was my best friend. Yeah. Our, our best friend. <laughs> he was hard. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I told you in this podcast earlier about Jimmy Freeman, the Australian. He, uh, he died October of 2010. Um, and then I was spending a fair amount of time in Yosemite and it was a really wonderful time, you know, cause I was hanging with Dean and Stanley and Evo and, um, Stanley died and, um, then Dean and Graham died and somewhere in there, Eric Rohner died, which I watched. Um, and that's not great, um, to see things like that. And then, uh, you know, there's more than two dozen people that I've been on, you know, on the spectrum of acquaintance that you said hi to, to good friend, but you've been on a hike with them in the mountains to go jump off something. Right. And I started looking at my logbook and I'm thinking, geez, if you look at all these jumps, most of them, someone's dead now. Right. And, and I know here I am, I, mean, I, I like racing cars, skiing, um, speed riding, paragliding. I have a lot of ways that I have fun and not all of them are killing so many of my buddies. Um, so that, that's kind of where you start thinking, you know, maybe we just put a little more effort over here. Uh, and, and another point was when people die, you have a natural tendency to want to justify your actions and differentiate them from others, right? Oh, well, you know, this guy died in an avalanche. Well, he was stupid to be out there that day. I would never do that. Or this guy um, opened his parachute low. Well, just don't do that and you're fine. And, you know, of course I evaluated everything that happened with Shane and, and learned from that and all, you know, you learn from these things as you should. But when, when, when people that are the best, the most talented, the Dean Potters and the Shane McConkeys are dying, then it becomes a little bit more difficult to point the finger and say, well, it'll never happen to me. It just happened to them, right? Because they're just straight up better. There's more talented, more dedicated. There's just, they've got more of the good stuff than, than I do. So at that point you got to think, well, maybe, maybe just maybe you, you, you got to look at the facts. You know, mm -hmm. and you kind of transition to speed riding. Yeah, very intentionally. Yeah, speed riding is wonderful. It's it's way safer. Yeah, you know, you typically have this. You know, you have the with speed riding, you're standing on a mountain and you have your parachute laid out on the ground. You start skiing. You point your skis down. You know, you can stop. You can ski yourself to safety, or boom, the parachute comes up. Now you could fly that parachute to safety. So you, you go from having one way to fly to, or to return to safety to two. So you go from one to two, then you're in the air, 
Now you got just one way to fly to get back to safety. That's flying. And when you're touching down, you're back to two. You can ski yourself to a stop, or you can fly. Whatever. Um, when you base jump, when you ski base jump, you go from one because you're a skier, and then you ski off the cliff, and you have gone to zero. You can no longer ski yourself to safety because you for sure die if you stay in that sport. And you're putting all your eggs in this basket of transitioning yourself to an in-control participant of another sport. So you're going from one to zero to one, right? And if you think of it in this binary level, it's not real wise, not, not smart, right? Um, and, but speed riding way, way more chill. And mm -hmm. it's really fun. It's, it's video game skiing, right? It's, it's, you know, oh, it's crusty snow. That's okay. doesn't bother me. Just fly a little more. Yeah. Just fly a little more, or you can weight yourself at 40%, right? You can have the skiing experience of a eight-year-old, <laughs> right? Yeah. Cause you just kind of just put more pressure on your hands and now you don't have to have as much pressure on your legs, but you're still skiing. Yeah. Um, so ski speed riding is, is a hoot. Um, and, uh, yeah, I like it. I liked how you said earlier, like you like the destination. Cause I remember you used to invite me on hikes and we'd go on a hike together and then it'd be some weird particular hike. And I'd be like, oh, I've never been on this hike before. And then we get to the top and you'd just be like, all right, I'm going to fly down. I'd ab <laughs> I'd ab I abandoned people. Yeah, totally. See you later. And then I was like, dang, I really got to go to Valparaiso and like learn how to speed fly. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> um, and then... So years go by, you're base jumping, you're speed flying. What got you into Hollywood and doing stunt work first mm -hmm. and then now producing stunts? Right. So um, stunts, one major barrier to entry with becoming a stunt performer um, or stunt coordinator is becoming a member of the Screen Actors Guild. And after the 2009 60-minute piece, the Birdmen, where we were flying wingsuits in Norway, um, I got a call from Michael Bay, and they wanted wingsuits flying through Chicago for Transformers 3. So, boom, dream job. Um, absolutely stormed the castle, 14 jumps in Chicago with wingsuits, plus another one or two off of uh, the Trump Tower uh, in Chicago just falling to the earth without a wingsuit landing on a movie set with explosions and actors with fake machine guns tackling you into rubble saying <laughs> duck and cover pretty fun um and oh wow stunts stunts is pretty cool um now that is not your typical stunt job um a lot stunts is a lot more you know blue collar um work stuff there's a lot of work that goes into all the safety and all the movements and all the um coordination with all these different departments and and um you know so my introduction to stunts is very different than how it really is but um i recognized the opportunity that i had in front of me and immediately went to stunt driving school and um started you know, networking and keeping in touch with coordinators. And, um, you know, for the next 10 years, I um, always 
was gaining some experience as a, as a stuntman. Um, a lot of that is, was within my specialties, snow and air and a bit of driving, but, um, also gaining experience in more fundamental stunts, which is rigging and fighting and falling and just all the normal things that you see in movies and driving. Um, so in, in recent years, I've, uh, been, you know, the evolution of a stunt performer is to become a coordinator. Um, and I, I kind of started as a coordinator in a way because I was organizing all these specialty stunt sequences. Um, so I had experience coordinating. Um, I was already pretty handy with an Excel spreadsheet and a budget and a plan and all these things. Um, so, you know, just kind of had a good foundation. Um, but what it's evolved to is um, that I've, you know, had some bigger responsibility movies um, where I'm working with badass actresses and actors and, um, you know, building, building action sequences for proper Hollywood movies. It's pretty uh, fascinating. It's cool. Um, and uh, I like it. Yeah, that's awesome. It's hard work too. People think of stunts, they think stuff's blowing up, people are fighting and falling downstairs and that is stunts, but it's also a lot of, the coordinating side is a lot of adulting, right? There's a lot <laughs> yeah. of safety conversations and, and, and budgets getting approved and plans and um, there's a lot of work, right? Real, real, real job stuff. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, you know, everybody loves to be a stunt performer and everybody, you know, and, and everybody also appreciates the coordinator because the coordinator has to, has to kind of make all the opportunities happen. Right. Whereas the, you know, it's wonderful to show up and do, do a backflip on a pair of skis and get paid and go home. But the coordinator's got to, you know, he brings his work home he or she brings the work home with them, right? Mm -hmm. They've got homework to do. Yeah. Right. We're up late making it all, making it all happen. Yeah. And we were chatting just before going on air about how you've kind of always been one step ahead of your career with, within the realm of developing these new skill sets and where you can take yourself. And I think that's like a really interesting thought for other professional athletes. Mm -hmm. It's like, where, where is this going to evolve to? And I don't know. I just appreciate that you had that foresight and you're kind of still, you're still in the mix with skiing. You're still in the mix with stunt work. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to balance it all because if you do too many things, you don't do any one of them at your very best potential. So it's good to be diversified, but you also have to remember that if you're going to be a badass specialist, you need to be 100% laser focused and dedicated to your craft. So there's, there's flip sides to all this stuff, but I have, I always had what I consider a, a healthy, uh, lack of confidence that this riding this wave of sponsored person, Hey, look at me, uh, I'm rad type stuff that that wave doesn't last forever that wave crashes into the shore like any other wave. And it's important to kick out and go catch the next wave rather than smash into the beach and 
scorpion faceplant onto the sand. <laughs> I've done that. Right. Well, and, and, and over the years, I, I had years where I got dropped by sponsors when I was on the cover of magazines and podiums and movie segments. And, and then I had years where I got raises with a blown ACL, you know, it's a, it's a wild ride and I've always been fiscally pretty responsible. So on the low years, which there were several low years of income where I thought, oh, this is the last year I'm going to be able to do this. And, you know, I'm only making peanuts, but I'm living on my savings and I'm still reinvesting in my career and skiing and shooting. But lo and behold, those years are the years where I ski the best because you're like, I'm skiing all day because next year, you don't know if I get to waste away my afternoons like this. <laughs> <laughs> then you start skiing really well and that opportunities, opportunity knocks and you stomp some stuff and things start falling into place. Um, but uh, I always you know, developed what else was next. And I observed people around me. Most professional skiers, it's not – most professional athletes, there's something more than just – the, um, you know, the performance and the dollars coming in from sponsors that want to be a part of your, you know, badass um, endeavors and uh, gain exposure through your performance, right? So, you know, you might have a professional surfer who's also a model, or you have professional skiers that are guides and coaches, or who knows what it is, you know, clinics, um, there's hospitality, right? People taking, taking well-heeled individuals on the trip of a lifetime and they get to ski with so-and-so or surf with so-and-so. And, and, you know, there's, there's usually more to a professional athlete's career than, um, than just winning, um, and, and looking good while they do it. So, I have always developed those other avenues. Um, I do speeches and that pays well and it's a challenge, it's a big challenge, um, but it's, it's gaining momentum. Um, hospitality, there's a, one of the most prof successful professional skiers in the industry is a guy named Franz Weber and he changes people's lives with these extremely memorable ski, um, ski, trips right ski days corporate events organizes your skiing puts the right personalities together there's tons of work behind the scenes it's not the easiest thing in the world um and and then stunts mm -hmm. and you know in recent years the stunts one has really um garnered my focus uh and it's a lot of times it's um when you're when you're dedicated when I've been dedicated to stunts, I'm I'm gaining experience in in a world where I'm small fish, big pond, right? And it's fairly separate from my skiing career. But then you get these jobs where you're actually coordinating skiing, right? Or you're working with these extremely badass individuals in other sports and you're expanding your network that benefits your athletic career immensely. Um, or I can't speak to some of the sports that are in upcoming movies, but they're all the sports we've been talking about um, on this podcast here today. 
So, you know, then you're in these behind the scenes shoots that, you know, benefit your brand and your, um, and the brands that you're with. So it's, uh, it's cool that it, 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 they, uh, complement each other. Well, these careers that I have built for myself. Yeah. And you're still garnering, garnering new sponsorships like peak. Yeah. Peak's been great. Yeah. It's, uh, I, uh, Geez, yeah, I'm pretty psyched. I mean, these skis are incredible, and this company's been around for a year, and it's not very common for suddenly a, a company shows up on the scene to to just start gaining these coveted top slots at all these ski reviews and um, selling a lot of skis, and and you know, there's it's pretty significant momentum that peak has built you know probably because they signed you up first <laughs> i don't know about that oh, no. i think you're right though it is fascinating like the skis are quite amazing and they feel different than many skis that i'm used to mm-hmm. i think the technology that bodhi's implemented has does uh it works mm-hmm. and uh primarily like the one that i'm fascinated by is the keyhole technology yeah um which was he kind of discovered that by accident. He did. Yeah. Because I believe it was Rosinal messed up a pair of race skis and he skied them and he was winning stuff. And it like, he all of a sudden was on the podium at major races. And then he left Rosinal and he mm-hmm. lost those skis. Mm-hmm. And then someone else got those skis, inherited them, and they started doing really well. Mm-hmm. And eventually he came back to those skis and he cut them open, dissected them, and noticed that there was this, yeah, missing piece in the metal, right? Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that that, like, so the keyhole is right in front of your front binding. And when you set your ski on edge, like it hooks on edge, it's really easy to get it on edge, but it is also incredibly stable throughout the turn. And like, I personally haven't felt that on a pair of skis in a while. And and maybe it's like Bodhi's little touch yeah. of <laughs> his expertise and background, but I think it works really well. It does work. The skis have their own flavor for sure. They're, they are different. The edge grip is is bar none. Now, I don't think that the difference for me is as much because head is, those guys are making, in my opinion, just A plus skis. Um, but the, there is, there is a difference there, right? They are better. The keyhole technology is legit. And there's a lot of technology in skiing that is completely bullshit. Um, and even the people that make it sometimes will admit that it's fully full on bullshit. Um, and they just need a story to go with it. And that's, that's where the marketing department comes in. Um, but the, uh, I notice the, uh, what I love about the skis is that because of the way Bodie's making the skis and the tip and tail rise and the keyhole technology, you don't need as much side cut, mm-hmm. right? So now you've got a ski that is not quite as fat at the tip and tail. So your swing weight's less. Um, So it feels really lightweight. It also is made with the best materials. So it is lightweight, but it feels even lighter than that. Um, And my preference with with skis has almost always been not too much side cut because I want to be the boss of how that radius is going to be, um, is, is going to play out. Right. I don't want the ski to have 
too much of a mind of its own, right? I like to put the thing on rails and be in charge. Whereas skis with too much side cut are, Shane used to call those skis unstable hookers <laughs> because they were not stable and they would hook up when you initiated the turn, especially in soft snow. So these skis, you're the boss. That's confidence inspiring. Um, it's nice to spend a day with le- on skis with less swing weight. Um, and you know, they're, they're just working and it's an easy transition, um, for me, but, um, I like that the, I like the, that because the keel technology, what it does, it helps you initiate the turn, right? And what else, what's an alternative for helping you initiate the turn side cut, Mm -hmm. right? So because you got the keel technology, you've got that easy turn initiation, setting it onto its rail, onto its radius. Um, and it all can happen with less side cut and, and that, that I really love. And then the other thing is my skis, I don't know why, but I'm able to ski somewhat shorter Mm -hmm. on these peak skis. Um, for some reason, they're just kind of stable, confidence inspiring. I think it's because of the lack of side cut mm-hmm. that a, for me, a 178 centimeter ski, I'm 5'11", 172 pounds. Um, for those listening as a reference point, I'm enjoying the 178 centimeter ski. Um, just working for me. Yeah. Stable, fun, great. I mean, to be totally honest, like this entire massive storm cycle we've been experiencing with like cold smoke, amazing snow, mm-hmm. super deep. I've been on 104s and completely- 104 underfoot yeah. millimeters. Yeah. And yeah. with that keyhole also, it kicks up the front of the ski. So you kind of have yeah. this like rocker effect, if you will. Yeah. You're getting more float Yeah, out of less ski. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's going on. Yeah. And also, I, I do want to say that I think the Black Crows made amazing skis. I, yeah. I am a huge fan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting to move from uh, a different ski company onto these. They're just new. It's it's different. And, and yeah, I'm quite enjoying them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to see where it goes. It's an interesting like endeavor to join on with a new company. But I think that's also really exciting times. Mm-hmm. And well, the thing that... that one thing that differentiates Peak is they're direct to consumer. Yeah. Right. And that is, there's good and bad with that, right? There, That's a choice that yeah. you make because the ski industry has this model of um, the, the North American headquarters buys it from the factor, from the European headquarters, right? And then they sell it to the rep and then the rep sells it to the shop and the shop sells it to the, um, consumer. to the consumer. Right. So there's a lot of people there. They got to make money. And now if you're direct to consumer, you eliminate many of those, not all of those. So there's more profit margin there in theory, but what that does for a company like peak is it allows them to invest more in the R and D, right? Instead of this small sliver of profit, they can get put back into the company and, um, go explore all of Bodie's crazy ideas. Um, it's, it's a bigger piece of that, that they can go and say, all right, Bodie, do your thing. 
right? And Bodie, Bodie's got a mind a lot like Shane's, right? There's mm -hmm. a, there was a ton of knowledge in there um, that was actually very well articulated uh, and that um, sounds a bit bizarre sometimes, um, but works, right? These it guys, is fascinating yeah, to these, listen to it, him talk about it. Yeah, these guys, it, and and he's um, Bodie's. Bodie knows how to make skis, right? He knows a ton about skis. I mean, we are free skiers, right? Yeah. We don't have as intimate of a relationship with our skis as a ski racer does. Totally. Right. Um, Nor have we ever had the technology that he had while he was a ski racer right. to explore those. Sure. We don't have technicians traveling yeah. with us. Right. We don't, um, our career doesn't come down to milliseconds, right? Our performances don't come down to milliseconds. It comes down to you know, quad strength and hamstring strength and smart line choices and longevity. I mean, careful what you say. The PMS is coming up. Oh gosh. <laughs> I know. Yeah. The snowblade, snowblade Chinese downhill race. That'll be a leg burner. <laughs> it's always a leg burner. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I just dropped off my ski, my, my blades at the start house. Oh, no way. You're getting them waxed up. See, I have big feet. Oh, yeah? Yeah, the, I don't own a pair of blades. I have big feet. Yeah. Well, so I've got the, I've got the moments. I've got the K2s. And then I've got a custom pair coming from. Shane McConkie. J. No, oh. no. The J's. I want to get my hands on a pair. They sold out in hours, though. Oh. So I don't know if I'll have those. I think those are going to be the hot ticket. I think that's probably the one to get on. Yeah. Um, but uh, Full Send Ski Co. out of the Midwest. These guys uh, and I, they, we, we, we got a little something up our sleeve. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh huh. Yeah. So, it's a custom uh, pair. They're carbon fiber. <laughs> Cause I won the saucer on my snow on my big feet, uh -huh. which are not dynamic to ski. No, no, you're at a disadvantage, but you're Black Panther. Yeah, but maybe you're I just should, that good. I should hop on a pair of snowblades. I think you should if you want to win. Do you have an extra pair? It sounds like you have. Well, a I have a, I have a full quiver. Yeah, <laughs> can I borrow a pair? Yeah, four or five pair. I have. Yeah. <laughs> That's so epic. I can hook you up. Yeah. For y'all that don't know, the PMS happening March 25th to benefit the Shane McConkie Foundation happens at Palisades. And I don't know what the events will be this year, but there's usually a mass start race with everyone at the top going down. And then you have to, once you get to the bottom of KT, you round a gate and you have to run uphill snowblades on and, and you are coughing blood. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because it becomes this comic, it starts out as this kamikaze race, right? Where whoever's the most risk willing is going to, make it the fastest and people are truly detonating in your peripheral vision, right? <laughs> yeah. Darren it, Rawls broke a snowblade in half. It, yeah. It, injuries are going to happen. And then you get down and suddenly now it's a complete CrossFit exercise endurance, <laughs> right? You are running uphill with your blades on, right? And you, you just did basically a wall sit for two and a half minutes. Uh, so you're pretty cooked and you got to run up there and claim the prize. Um, and it, it's, people always underestimate that climb up that hill. Oh yeah. It's the real deal. It's short, but it is a stinger. Yeah. I remember one year I like, I was communicating with you. I was running a little bit late. It was like an early ups thing where we went up the Funatel and I think I was confused. I thought that Snowblades would be there at the Funatel for the start and I didn't uh -huh. have them. Uh -huh. And you waited so patiently for me. I think it was you and Johnny Mosley. 
Uh-huh. And then you guys carried me down the entire mountain run on snowblades. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yep. <laughs> Thank you for that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun. Yeah, it's a good time. I can't wait for it. Um, what's next for you? What are you up to? Well, I've been skiing. I've been skiing, kind of skiing my skiing and shoveling, really. <laughs> Yeah, story. We have uh, people who aren't listening that are, aren't, aren't in the area. We have, well, we have like 15, 20 feet of snow or something. And we are at, at the base elevation. Yeah. We're it's like ridiculous. We're the third most snowfall ever recorded at the Sierra Snow Lab right now, but looking to pass number two and potentially number one. And it's been, it's been a time. 700 inches, right? Isn't that like a hundred meters or something? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a mathematician, <laughs> but it's a lot. My roof started leaking twice. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm skiing a lot and I'm really kind of eager to go speed riding because we haven't had that many sunny days. Yeah. You um, went today though. You know, I went today, but I did not. I Today I went up the mountain with my parachute, but the thing is that perfect corn snow was where the trees were too mm. and you, that's one thing is you gotta um parachutes and trees don't mix that well yeah so i just skied today okay yeah so you should have come hiking with me I, how was it it was amazing was it yeah it was yeah. To, corn was epic today corn was epic yeah i love a little mid-march can corn. you believe that it just like instantly turns to corn here it's crazy yeah that's uh, I mentioned to somebody on a chairlift when we were dumbfounded at how good it was at Palisade Tahoe the other day. Doesn't stay lousy long. Yeah. You know, just never stays lousy long here. Yeah. No bad skiers, just shitty attitudes. Yeah. No bad snow, just shitty attitudes. Yeah, there's bad snow. <laughs> there's bad snow. There's definitely bad snow. Myth is busted. I've, Hit I've, him with the truth. I've yeah. enjoyed it. I've, I've uh, but I'm yeah, exploring. we had a couple of days of rain and then it turned back into corn snow and it was amazing. And now we're about to get hit with our third atmospheric river. Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, maybe this one's going to be big, maybe small, but whatever happens on top of this is going to be perfect. Yeah. I, there's not a mogul on the mountain. Yeah. And I just think that everything from the, and there's no, I mean, there's no weak layers in this snowpack. I mean, it's, I challenge anybody to start an avalanche right now. Yeah, it's now. pretty locked up. But oh, like seeing yeah. the detonation from what just happened, I saw so many massive crowns oh, yeah. from the storm cycle. Oh, yeah, no, the, the, the mountains got the, all that out of their system. Yeah. And now for the rest of the season, we don't even have to bring beacons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope not. Um, I always wear my beacon. Just I, for I was kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank um, you, Black Panther. I have a question, though. I kind of tend to ask a lot of my guests. And if you could uh, just give me a brag on something that you're really proud of over your lifetime. Well, celebrate that. Well, it was a pond crossing of 2009. I believe it occurred on May 15th. But um, me and Cody Townsend and Timmy Dutton, we uh, three men and a baby. We put, we had... Cody on the outside, he had a ski on his left foot and he was clicked into a mono ski with his right foot. And then Tim was clicked into that mono ski with his left foot. And then Tim's right foot was also in a mono ski. And then I was clicked into the mono ski and then had another outrigger ski on my right foot. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So you have monoski in the middle. Two mono, two monoskis. Oh, right. Two. Two monoskis. So Cody, Cody and Tim are on a monoski, and then Tim and I are on a monoski. So Tim's only on two monoskis. Cody and I each have an outrigger ski, and we crossed the pond. Right, we made it across the Cushing Lake Cushing at Palisades <laughs> Tahoe, and uh, it was called Three Men and a Baby. And so, yes, I, I that's my um, that's my one of my proudest um, claims to fame. That and the worst f- wipeout in Fred World Tour history. Um, that that is also uh, one of my one of my. Quick yeah, brags. I think you still have that. I still have that. Yeah, it's been a bu- it's been a long time. I think Verbier didn't is to Verbier Verbier is happening soon. I don't know. I've been without the internet for a couple of days. Oh, just all right. Now I got a question for you. Do do more, care less. What? Care less, do more. Okay, what is what's that all about? Care less about the noise. Care less about what people think, and just go do it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Care less, do more. Okay. The I artist imagine. who helped me develop the logo for mm. the podcast, Jessica Gilbert. She kind of like mentioned it one day. We were, we were coming up with like themes and whatever, the logo and all this. And she was like, that's kind of your vibe. And I was like, mm. I like it. Mm. I like it. I it. like it too. I always find it interesting that, okay, I people say I could care less. Okay. Well, that means you do care because you could care less. Right. But shouldn't it be, I couldn't care less? I don't know. Yeah. But I now know. I understand yours. It makes more sense. I like it better. Yeah. Like I don't like to get caught up in what people think right people send me videos of my old ski segments and they're like what were you thinking and i was like i don't know i don't care <laughs> do you think that much when you ski yes so no it's more like the acting and, and oh. not that came around some of those old oh, segments. Who cares? they make me laugh looking back on it yeah yeah well it's been well, a an thanks honor for having and a me. pleasure yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Sorry I go long on my stories. It's the best. That's what we're here for. (laughs) All right. (laughs) See you, people.